Welcome to Zero. I'm Oscar Boyd. And I'm Christine Driscoll. We're the producers on Zero, and we are joined, as always, by our eminent host, Akshat Rathi. Akshat, welcome back to London. You've been in Singapore, Australia, and India, visiting and interviewing all sorts of interesting people working in climate. How were your travels? Oh, really good. Energizing, exhausting, surprising. All the things that good travel is supposed to be. What was the best thing you saw? I mean, that's an easy one because I went to the Great Barrier Reef. It's very hard to beat a world wonder, which I'd been looking forward to see. The other wonder is Singapore. It's a man-made wonder. And that was crazy fun too. I mean, it's the most densely populated country in the world, 100% urban and yet, it's also a really good place to visit. Everything works. Um, <laughs> cooling is on all the time. We went down and saw some cooling projects, including a district cooling project, which was very interesting. Workers in the basement that had huge vats of ice cool using renewable electricity when it's available. But yeah, two wonders of the world. That's great. So a couple of months ago, we introduced a new format on Zero, which is our numbers-based climate guessing game. Because of its wild popularity last time, today the game is getting a second outing. And so just to quickly recap, if this is your first time or you've been wowed by Singapore and everything's left your mind, there are a lot of climate numbers out there and they don't make it onto a full episode of Zero. But they do paint a good picture of where we're going and it is a shame to ignore them. So the purpose of this game is to highlight our favorites. Exactly. And to recap the rules as well, they're very simple. Each one of us will present a number and then the other two have to figure out what that number represents. Each person can ask three questions. You can ask for clues if you get stuck and then you have to guess. Akshat, do you remember how to play? Yeah, it's easy enough. As always, I play games only if I have a chance to win a prize. And I was a little disappointed last time around because... You guys gave me a carbon credit. Not interested in one of those. So what's the prize this time? Hey, what's wrong with a carbon credit? <laughs> yeah, you should go back and listen to the episode with Mark Trexler to understand why carbon credits don't work. But yes, go on. So this time, the prize is much more special, much more real in many ways. And the prize, you'll be delighted to know, Akshat, is a copy of a new book being published on October the 12th called Climate <laughs> Capitalism. Akshat, would you like to explain the prize oh. a little bit? Well, I would like to lose it so one of you get, wins it then. The pressure's on. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll, I'll give a brief intro, but Akshat, you should use this opportunity to promote your new book as well. It's called Climate Capitalism. It's out October 12th. I've read most of the first few chapters. I haven't finished it yet, but it's great. It's brilliant. It's a really, really fun read. And I would recommend anyone who is listening to go out and pre-order the book. Akshat, do you want to give it a brief plug as well? Yes, it's a book about climate solutions. So anybody listening to Zero, the podcast about climate solutions, will not be surprised by it. But I would hope the surprising stories in it uh, will interest you. Some of them, or at least some of the people behind those stories, have featured on this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a lot more in there. Writing a book is very different from any other kind of journalism I've done so far. And it also gave me an opportunity to sort of lay out a case for where we are and correct some of the misperceptions around whether we are doing enough on reducing emissions. So I'm really excited for what people think about it. Really nice reviews are coming through. So I feel less nervous now because some people have read it and they've said, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Great review for our prize. It's all right. It's all right. Okay, so to sum that up, Akshat, you are ready to compete for your own book. Correct. Shall we play? 
whose number is it anyway? Christine, would you like to go first this time? Yes, I am ready. My number is 50. 50. Hmm. That's a that's a small number. Is it a small number? Well, again, if you're doing it like last time, if it's going to be a percentage, I guess we need the unit. You have a really good memory. Uh, it is a percentage. <laughs> and I'll I'll throw in a little extra hint. Uh, it's a percentage reduction. So it cannot be the 2030 target because the 2030 target is 43% reduction over 2019 levels. Yeah, that's not it. Hmm. Now, I haven't said what we're reducing, but you are on the correct path. Can I try and define the geographic area a little bit? Is it a reduction that's happened in the USA? Yes, it is. Does it have anything to do with electricity generation? No, not directly. Actually, you look like you're bubbling with questions slash deep in thought. I'm actually confused because I don't know what it is if it's not electricity. The closest we come to it is the U.S. goal, which Joe Biden set for a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. I've got an idea. Is it something that is to do with land use change? No. Okay, that's my idea gone. Okay, I have another hint. I want you to fill in the blank. If I say Microsoft, what's the first word that comes to mind? Windows. XP. <laughs> Dang, I was going to say office because it's about working in an office and the effect that that has on your emissions. Oh. I th okay, I think I know roughly what this is. It's how much your emissions reduced by or how much emissions have been reduced by people working from home. Yes, I think I'm going to, I want to give this point to Oscar. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm one step closer to finishing Akshat's book. <laughs> so basically, there was a big headline recently about a study of office workers and remote workers. And the ultimate finding was, if you work from home, the emissions savings could be as much as 50%. And that's like the big headline, because everyone's like, hmm. woohoo, let's keep working from home. I looked at the study. There's a lot of really great details in it. I encourage other people to look at the study. But there are a lot of neat things that are not in the headline, and I wanted to talk about that. So this was a study of Microsoft office workers in the U.S., I could not get the researcher to tell me exactly how many people that was, but it's at least 20,000. So Microsoft has 120,000 people working in the U.S. Anyway, this professor of energy systems engineering at Cornell, Dr. Fan Shi Yu, and other colleagues did the study tracking Microsoft workers in the U.S. And the thing that's not in the headline that I think is so interesting is that you have to be working from home more than one day a week in order to get this benefit. If you just work from home one day a week, it doesn't really do very much. And why, why is that? It has to do with the amount of trips that a person who is working from home does on their one day that they're working from home. So it's like they're driving more, essentially. And that goes back to like the source of emissions if you're working in the office is commuting and the energy use of the building. And I work from home, so sometimes I feel guilty about it. Like, oh, I'm sitting here with the electricity on and like the computer and the router. And there's all these empty office buildings that are just running really great air conditioning and I'm not there. And it turns out that because I'm working from home more than one day a week, I actually am kind of in the clear. <laughs> I'm doing something marginally good. 
do Microsoft employees or the ones studied, are they largely driving to work? Because I'd be interested to know whether it's the same effect in, say, London, where it's very easy to cycle or take the bus or take the tube or whatever kind of form of public transport you want to get to work and you're not driving so much. Yeah, it's a lot of driving. And in the study, too, they make the point that you could further reduce your emissions as a worker if you drive an EV, but then also only really if you're in the Pacific Northwest where there's a lot more renewable energy. If you're in the South or the Mid-Atlantic, there's so much coal generation that it's negligible. There's not a lot of great examples of Americans commuting by train or bike. (laughs) So it's really a car-centric study. So all the carbon-intensive countries really should be working from home. You know, if you're living in Saudi Arabia, don't go to work. Yeah, (laughs) basically. Yeah, work from home two days a week at least. And if you really want your employees to come back to the office, make sure that your building is super energy efficient. And then you'll have a really strong case that it's better on a lot of levels. But everyone who's working from home should not feel guilty about it. Great. Akshat, you talked about district cooling. I do want to learn more about that because the cooling is such a big part of people's energy use, whether you're in the offices or at home. I think that you should go next. Okay, my number is 201 million. Okay, I think this is the number of electric vehicles that have been sold in a certain timescale. All right, you guys know me. It is electric vehicles, but... (laughs) Well done, Christine. It's timescale is forever. It's timescale is forever. As in from the beginning of time till now. Oh, okay. Is it something to do with the batteries inside the electric vehicles? Uh, no, it is a. It is about the vehicles themselves. It's not the number of miles that have been traveled. Nope. You've not done something annoying like times it by the number of tires that electric vehicles have. Nope. The vehicles themselves, 201 million. Is it global or is it one specific country, for example, China? One country. Is it China? Yes. Good. <laughs> um, All right, time to guess, I think. Oscar is pursing his lips with a question, yeah. Is it something to do with the number of people who have ridden in an electric vehicle in China in all time? No. Okay, my final guess is, I I don't think this is the right scale for China, but I will guess it's the number of electric vehicles sold in China to date. You're close, but still wrong. It is the number of two-wheeler electric vehicles that I told it was something annoying to exists. do with wheels. I said it. <laughs> no, it's not number of wheels. It's still number of vehicles. <laughs> so it's the number of electric two-wheelers that are in the fleet in China as of 2022. So it's 420 million wheels. <laughs> 402 million wheels. Sorry, 402 million wheels. Yeah. <sighs> electric two-wheelers include bicycles, motorbikes. Is it still a motorbike if it's... I guess it has yeah, a motor. Yeah, it is. Yes. Um, and most of it is actually mopeds rather than electric bikes. And it's a number that was just super shocking to me. You know, I went to China in 2017 and 2018 and I just saw electric two-wheelers everywhere. But, you know, the scale of China is so huge that even when you see them everywhere, you're still not like sure how many they might be. Um, And so when I first came across the number, I was shocked. And it is shocking, especially when you compare it to other countries. So the next country in the rank 
that has electric two wheelers is India. No surprises. But another guess, how much lower is that number? I'm going to say a tenth, so 20 million. Wait, but I want to know, does India manufacture? Yes, it does. These electric, okay. I'm going to stick with my theme of today and just do it's 50% lower. The number of electric two-wheelers in India were 1.5 million last year in 2022. The entire fleet. It's one one hundredth. One one hundredth. So China is like way ahead on this game. Has that actually displaced the need for fossil fuels then? So that's the other surprising thing. Because of the sheer number of electric two-wheelers, it's electric two-wheelers and three-wheelers combined that displace four times as much oil demand as all electric passenger cars sold globally. So your two and three-wheeler electric vehicles are displacing about a million barrels of oil demand per day, whereas passenger cars in total are displacing about quarter of a million barrels of oil demand per day. And for context, we consume about 100 million barrels of oil every day. Wow. So electric two and three wheelers have displaced 1% of global oil demand. Indeed. That's, That's pretty good for two wheels. Yeah. Is that just because they're mostly being used in highly dense, highly urban settings and getting rid of that last short distance travel that people would maybe use cars for? Maybe, but it's also that countries like India and China and Southeast Asia, two wheelers are the way to get around because they are cheaper to buy. They are much more efficient than a passenger car because you don't have to carry all that weight along just to sit in it. Um, And so they make for the mode of transport of choice because it's cheap and you can Mm -hmm. get around it. And, you know, to be fair to India, yes, it's 100th right now, but the rate of growth in India that Bloomberg NEF predicts is massive. So it's 1.5 million last year, it'll be 2.5 million this year, it'll be 3.5 million (laughs) next year. And that way it just goes up because the economic case for electric two-wheelers also has set in in India. And on my trip this time around, I saw so many of them. The thing that I think would also be really interesting with that is how much it changes air pollution. Yeah. You do notice it when you're going around Delhi, the fact there are so many polluting vehicles on the streets. And if you can change them all for EVs, which have very little pollution, then that's going to have a huge effect, surely. Yeah, totally. It's not uncommon for petrol-powered two-wheelers to have this huge amount of smoke coming out. Yes, they are more fuel efficient relative to a car, but they do produce higher air pollution just because their engines are small and they can't put in all the things that a car can do to be able to put out fewer particulate matter pollution. Hmm. That's another great number. Does anyone win a point? Oh, I, I think Christine gets half a point because she's very, I, very close. I think close. I got half a point. <laughs> I, was, I was so close. Hey, I got that thing about the wheels, though. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break while you ponder the existence of two-wheeled vehicles. And when we get back, more numbers. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. 
The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Okay, Oscar, it is your turn to share a number. My number is 2024. Well, that sounds like the year, but if it's not the year, <laughs> then... I mean, it'll be too obvious if it's the year. If so you chose let's, a year, that would be so... Uh, <laughs> I want to say... I think Am I getting number shamed? <laughs> it's very... It's, it's, is it's this a, a thing we do on our show now? <laughs> I don't know. Choosing a year, it feels, um, it's, it's a little bit punk, I guess. It's a little bit. I'll take it. <laughs> it is a year. Well, a lot of things are going to happen next year. India goes to election next year. It's not that. Uh, is this a year that something is going to be achieved? Yes. Oh, damn it. I should have asked that differently. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something, now that I something think about will it. very likely be achieved. Can I rephrase that? I want to know if something is starting to be built in 2024. Uh, no, nothing okay. is starting to be built. Is it to do with protection of a certain thing, like a forest or an ocean or, a, you know, like a terrestrial thing or animals? or? It is not. Is it the bike lanes from your last episode are finally <laughs> yeah. being built? <laughs> No, it has nothing to do with bicycles, which is one of, one of my big clues. Yeah. Okay, geographical uh, proximity. Yes. Give us a hint. Uh, it is global. Oh my God, is there a climate goal that may be achieved next year? Hmm, a global one. I'm really stumped. I'm going to give you another hint that it's okay. to do with our favorite energy association. IEA. IEA predicts something will happen in 2024. Very good. Now, what's the thing? Oh, I got it. But I think I'm wrong, but maybe I'm correct, which is all fossil fuel demand, oil, gas, and coal will peak in 2024. You're along the right lines, but think less fossil fuel, more renewable. Final guesses, please. Yeah, seriously. Just bear in mind, Christine, if you get this, then you Uh, get the book. I know. Um, I mean, I guess that this has something to do with the, like, let's just say renewables will have become present in every country on Earth's electricity generation of at least 2%. Nice guess, but no. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Is it a record? No more hints. No more hints. I mean, it will be a record, but it's not, it's not being framed in terms of records. Okay, I'm going with a wild guess because I don't know the answer, which is that renewable electricity, specifically solar, will be the cheapest form of electricity everywhere in the world. That might also be true. I'm not going to deny it, but it's not the figure I'm talking about. So 2024 is the year that the International Energy Agency predicts that renewables could overtake coal as the world's largest source of electricity. Whoa! Uh, Akshat is shaking his fist. I think I knew that. It just didn't hit me. Hey, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. And as a follow-up from that, so the figure I just gave is for all renewables, which includes hydro which is currently the largest solar wind 
both onshore and offshore. But by 2027, they think solar alone will be bigger than coal. Wow. And why I really liked this figure is that it builds upon their own predictions. And so all the way back in December of 2022, about nine, 10 months ago, the IEA released its Renewables 2022 report, which estimated that globally renewables might overtake mm. coal maybe in early 2025. But the latest report, which came out in July, says that it could be as early as 2024. It's caveated with as long as weather conditions are favourable, that uh, renewables as a whole should overtake coal. Um, and that answers one question, which is this is about generation of renewable electricity and not just the capacity. Mm. I should also correct myself, which is... Yes, the IEA did say something about peaking of oil, coal, and gas demand, but it said all of those will peak before 2030. I mean, that's also huge. Uh, what's crazy is when you look at these figures. Mm -hmm. So in 2014, all renewable energy put together made about 5,000 terawatt hours in a year. And at that point, so 2014, coal was about 10,000 terawatt hours globally. And coal has remained relatively consistent. It's kind of mm -hmm. fluctuated a little bit. But renewables in that 10-year period have doubled from 5,000 terawatt hours to almost 10,000 terawatt hours. And yeah, I mean, it's exciting because, as I said, it builds upon the IEA's own forecasts. And basically, they've just taken in all the new data from governments like China, the EU, the US, India, who are just pumping more and more money and changing their policies to basically make it easier to introduce renewables and make it less favorable for new fossil fuels to come into place. Yeah. And it does feel surprising, even though we just had Jenny Chase explain to us the solar revolution that is just mind boggling. But it's, it is that mind boggling that even after you slice and dice these numbers different ways, you're like, wow. The other last thing I'd like to mention about the IA report is that they've now made this claim that fossil fuels are seeing structural decline. Wow. Normally in the past, when fossil fuels have declined, it's been in the wake of big recessions, financial crashes, the OPEC oil crisis in the 1970s. They're saying now, because of how quickly renewables are rising, in particular solar, that fossil fuels are starting to go into a terminal structural decline, that even though electricity demand is still growing, all that new capacity that's needed is being taken up by renewables. And renewables are now making a real dent into fossil fuel infrastructure as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know who got that. Did either of you get that? I'm going to give it to Christine so she gets the Thank copy you. of Akshat's yeah. book. With, I expect uh, a signed version in the mail. There will be one. I think that wraps up our time. Thank you guys for playing Whose Number Is It? Anyway. This was fun. Great. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. Let us know what you thought of this format at zeropod at bloomberg.net. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Please do say nice things only. <laughs> Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is me, Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks as always to Kira Bindram. And we'll be back later this week. 